Hello, and welcome to Legally Speaking, a podcast series that aims to make the law and legal issues that affect your everyday life more accessible and maybe a little less scary. As this series is brought to you by Eisen Harrison Solicitors, the Yorkshire law firm, I'm joined today by Sarah Laffey, Head of Private Family Law for Eisen Harrison. Hello, Sarah. Hello. In this episode, we'll be discussing divorce and financial remedy. So I suppose the best place to start is with the first appointment, if you've reached the point where divorce seems the only option left. Sarah, what are the first things you would look to establish with a client who comes to you? Um, Well, we'd have a first appointment. And in that first appointment, we generally cover with the client what had happened in their relationship, what's broken down, why from their perspective it's broken down. Is there a way back? Because it is important to discuss the prospects of reconciliation and also any attempts that have been made in that regard. Have they had marital counselling, for instance? But where there isn't a way back, where we establish that divorce does appear to be the correct way forward, we'll then be looking at what arrangements they might envisage for the children, which parent they'll live with, when they'll spend time with the other parent, also what the finances are in the marriage, capital assets, debts, income. And actually, it's very important to establish what a client wants from the divorce. What are their top priorities? We often talk about that. And will they need maintenance, perhaps, to afford to live? But can the other party pay maintenance? So there's a lot for a lawyer to establish early on. It certainly sounds like it. So assuming a client wants a divorce, how do they then qualify? Well, there are a few qualifiers. There needs to be a recognised marriage and the parties will have been married for at least a year to begin with. People commonly talk about grounds for divorce. In fact, there's only one ground and that's that the marriage is irretrievably broken down. However, there are five facts, and one of these needs to be established to demonstrate that the marriage is irretrievably broken down. Most of the facts require a period of separation of two or more years, but those where people have not been separated for two years, they require a fault-based fact, and that must be established. And there are two fault-based facts, unreasonable behaviour or adultery. I will say, however, that in autumn this year, 2021, we will be able to do away with the fault-based facts and simply rely on a no-fault divorce, which will be much easier for the parties. Well, that certainly sounds like it's going to make life easier for everybody when we get to that point. But aren't there actual stages with a divorce that you have to go through? Yes, there are. Yes. One of the parties will need to be the petitioning party and the other the respondent party. So the process starts with a divorce application or a petition brought to court by the petitioning party. The other party, the respondent party, needs to then return an acknowledgement form, usually telling the court they do not intend to defend the divorce. Then the petitioning party applies for the middle stage of the divorce. We call that decree nisi. And after decree nisi, A minimum of six weeks and one day must pass before the petitioner applies for decree absolute. And decree absolute concludes the divorce. So given that there's that minimum of six weeks and a day in its entirety, how long does that process take? Well, it's a good question. Um, We used to estimate six-month time frame in amicable, straightforward cases. However, it has been more difficult to predict in recent years. The court has experienced some substantial backlogs with the paper-based traditional process, 
So we are having to prepare clients for it being probably at least a year. However, the online court, which is a relatively new initiative, sees a quicker process and that might conclude a divorce within the six-month traditional time frame. If there are disputes around financial assets and the split of those, then it will extend time frames because we don't tend to apply to finish the divorce with decree absolute until those finances are resolved. This can mean some divorces are 18, even 24 months plus. Finance is the element of this that everybody always talks about. You owe me half, I owe you half, etc, etc. Is it not as simple with finances as just a straightforward 50-50 split then? Well, like many things in life, it's not quite so simple. Often where there are plentiful assets, enough to go around so that everyone could have a mortgage-free house suitable for their needs in size, location, etc. and perhaps a nest egg besides, then we might well be thinking along the 50-50 lines. However, there aren't many of those cases in reality. The cost of housing rather makes this the exception rather than the rule. So when we're looking at more complex picture, we as lawyers balance factors. They're set out in Section 25 of the Matrimonial Causes Act 1973. And we'd be looking at relevant factors concerning the priority of housing needs for both, but especially the parent who would have the children in their care, what each party's earning capacity is, whether there are issues of health to take into account. Other complications might be contributions by each party, inheritances, ages of the parties, and in a minority of cases, conduct aspects can have an impact on settlement levels to each spouse. So unfortunately, it's not quite as easy as 50-50 split. You say conduct. What kind of conduct would, would have an impact on that? Well, actually, that's an interesting question as well, because many clients will think that if perhaps their spouse had an affair, that that should qualify for, for conduct. But in reality, it doesn't. It's very, very rare and exceptional cases. There might be a situation of one party perhaps gambling away all of the party's finances or virtually all of them. That might be conduct. But again, it's so rare. I've probably had two genuine conduct cases in my entire career. That's how exceptional they are. Based on that, are there any other aspects of the financial split which surprise people? Quite often, yes, yeah. I'd I'd say it's becoming less of a surprise to people, but certainly starting out in my family law career 15 years ago, it would often seem a shock statement to inform people that pensions are for division in divorce, along with the other assets. I think people can feel very protective about their pensions. They've often gained them in a way that seemed very individual to them. They They were working hard and that perhaps didn't feel like it was anything to do with the other spouse. Um, But yes, pensions are there for division along with the other assets and we can have pension sharing orders in order to divide them up. Wow, Okay. Yep, that was what I wouldn't have expected. What if a divorcing couple can't agree on that financial division of assets, where where do we go from there? Well, lawyers will try to resolve the dispute without recourse to the court in the first instance. But we will need to understand the assets, the debt position and the income in any marriage. So we require clients to take us through a financial disclosure process. This is where we can see what's there. It's a cards on the table approach and we need that to start any settlement discussions. 
will often engage the process of mediation and the parties attend an independent, impartial mediator to engage them in those further negotiations. Mediators can't offer legal advice to either party, however. Their nature is to be impartial, so lawyers are used alongside the process to advise clients on settlement discussions. We call solicitor negotiations and mediation pre-action negotiations. And in the event these do not determine a settlement for parties, then we can apply to the court and ask a judge to determine the division of assets. And we call that financial remedy proceedings. So your advice would probably be, in this instance, given the cards on the table approach, it's going to be better for everybody if you're just open and transparent. Yes, yes, certainly. It's actually very important and we're all under a duty to offer full and frank disclosure. And that's a duty that applies in the pre-action stages in the same manner as it would apply if there was litigation ongoing before the court. So cards on the table, open and honest, they are important expectations for clients to adjust to and recognise at the outset, certainly. And if it did move to the you know ultimate kind of financial remedy proceedings, what would that involve? Well, financial remedy proceedings take place at the family court. And in fact, we now have specific financial remedy courts. There was a recent pilot scheme that developed those, but they're now a permanent feature on our family court landscape. And there are various stages involved with financial remedy proceedings, a bit like with a divorce. So we start the proceedings issuing them on a particular court form And then the court sets a timetable for various things to happen before a first hearing. And in terms of those various things to happen, we have dates for the exchange of more formal financial disclosure and also dates for parties to raise questionnaires, perhaps, based on the other party's disclosure. That allows them to ask questions where it seemed the disclosure perhaps wasn't quite complete or it was inadequate. And then we have the first hearing, and we call that the first directions appointment. It's the first occasion the parties will attend court physically, or perhaps in COVID times we've had telephone hearings or video hearings. But it's the first time they'll come before a judge. So it's often quite a scary thing for a client. However, generally, my experience is that most clients feel more relaxed about the process after they've got that first hearing under their belt. And from the first hearing, we tend to have directions that take us to the next stage in the case. It might be that there needs to be more financial disclosure, possibly some valuations of businesses or properties or even pensions. And then after that, we'd have a second hearing, which is called an FDR, a financial dispute resolution hearing. A good number of cases do settle at the FDR hearing. So that's a positive, certainly. And those that don't settle, and they are a minority, proceed to a final hearing. And it's only actually at a final hearing where a judge can make a decision to determine the division of financial assets between the parties. All the other hearings before that, the FDA and the FDR, the judge's role is there to set directions to ensure financial disclosure is complete, but also to encourage the parties to reach a settlement together, perhaps with the judge's direction, but still for them to be involved centrally in reaching that settlement and making the agreement. 
So I noticed you mentioned, Sarah, that uh, most clients, once they've got past that first hearing, there's a kind of sense of relief, but obviously there's still a fair way to go. How do you generally find that, that clients feel about the whole process? Well, it's a mixed bag, I suppose. Um, sometimes we have clients who are leading the process. They've wanted the divorce. Other times we see clients who haven't led the process necessarily, but they do agree that there should be a divorce and are content to go along with it. Those groups are probably the most common. However, we'll also have the occasional client who doesn't want to be divorcing at all. And the idea of divorce and separation from their spouse is a real shock to them. All clients can reflect on a sadness about their marriage's ending. That's certainly true. But divorce is often a relief for many as well. The actual legal process can be daunting and uncertain, probably stressful, and at times it can be hard work. I advise many clients that they should regard their divorce as a part-time job, which they need to contend with in addition to their full-time jobs for a while, but that it's a moment in time and there is life after divorce, which is generally more settled and less turbulent. Nobody enjoys divorce, but it's recognised by clients as a means to the end and a more fulfilling life awaits thereafter. Usually the most difficult thing is leaving a marriage. So yes, clients find divorce tough, but they've already done the hardest thing by the time they land with us as lawyers. In other words, this too shall pass. But do you ever find that that people, once they've been through this process, decide they're never going to remarry and be in a position where they go through that again? Sometimes that can be the case, but a lot of clients will and do remarry. I often have clients who are divorcing in order to remarry. Marriage is an institution. Couples commit to one another in a manner which cannot be matched by any other form. Cohabitation is just not significant enough commitment for many. And religion can play a massive part, of course. Marriage is the correct and natural thing to do for many because it's ingrained within them from their religious cause. And I'd say divorce shouldn't be feared. It shouldn't dictate an individual's future life and happiness. We only have one life. Live it. I couldn't agree more. And what an excellent point on which to end. Sarah, thank you very much for your time. If you want to delve deeper into this or find out more about the subject, you'll be able to find more details and contact for Sarah's team at isonharrison.co.uk. Music